Hey folks, it's Jared. Today I'm joined by Brent Sadler to discuss his piece for Heritage entitled Applying Lessons of the Naval War in Ukraine for a Potential War with China. This episode was edited and produced by Jonathan Selling. Simsec is looking for a volunteer to join our technical team and support our web operations. We are looking for someone with a background in WordPress implementation and support, as well as knowledge in web hosting and networking. Some knowledge of identity management and security operations is also helpful. So if you're interested, please reach out to content at simsec.org to share your background and discuss. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters. Contact information on the website at SimSec.org. So reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shimmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Brent Sadler, a naval analyst from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to discuss his paper entitled Applying Lessons of the Naval War in Ukraine for a Potential War with China. So, Brent, welcome. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about your professional background, please? No, thank you. Um, 27 years in the Navy, started out as a Napster up in Newport, Rhode Island, Naval Academy, lots of time in the Western Pacific and a nuke submariner for the majority of that time. The latter part, I became a foreign area officer with an Indo-Pacific uh, focus. And I just retired in at the height of COVID, unfortunately, in 2020, and been lucky enough to keep talking and advocating on issues really important to Navy and maritime competition with China and Russia. So your article is, again, is applying lessons of the naval war in Ukraine and then dot, dot, dot for potential war with China. What, if any, assumptions are you making about the nature of future U.S.-China war as you're drafting the report? So a few of the assumptions that I'm making is that uh, first and foremost is that time is of the essence. Uh, you've heard Admiral Davidson and you've heard it doubled down by current and previous CIA directors uh, that this is a very dangerous time. The year 2027 is sometimes bandied about. Uh, I am committed to that, as there are several, that this is, in fact, a dangerous time. And there's a window, a very small window, where the risks are very high. So that's one assumption. The other assumption that I think is key is that the Navy will be a key player, perhaps the critical player in any conflict or, say, a crisis leading up to conflict over Taiwan in Asia. So those 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 were my two big assumptions going into this. Now you identified a number of parallels between the ongoing war and then the potential war with China. So what were those parallels? Yeah, so I try to use a construct that, you know, often I'll, I'll write and I'll try and think like a staff officer in the Pentagon because uh, they have a busy job, a million things they got to cover. And so I, I use key operational problems as a construct to try to make the argument between what people are seeing and reading about in a lot of energy about the Black Sea and in the war in Ukraine, I try to use three key operational problems that parallel to what you would see in, in a Taiwan crisis or contingency. Uh, the first one is the ability to blunt and deny an aggressor's victory, a quick fait accompli. The other is the, the ability to sustain. You know, keep the arms flowing, keep the, keep your, your ally, your partner in the fight, so to speak. And then the last one is an maneuver advantage. 
so those three key operational problems I, I saw both playing out in Ukraine, uh, but in the Black Sea and along the coastline. And, and I definitely have seen it as something that has to be considered uh, if a crisis or a war were to erupt over Taiwan. So that's how I approach that. What were some of the key differences as you assess them there? Uh, sustainment obviously jumps off the pages. Yeah. I, I don't know if I want to say it's more challenging. I wrote more challenging as we're prepping this here, but yeah. you know, m- maneuver in that littoral environment, if we're talking about sustainment by sea, uh, could, yeah. I guess you could say it's more challenging in Ukraine even, yeah. but, uh, so sustainment jumps off the page, but maneuver seems like mm-hmm. a lot of opportunities when we talk about a naval war just because of the, the distance that you can cover in the ship in the course of the day versus what you can do on the ground. Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. The sustainment one is probably the most obvious and the most, uh, explicit difference. I mean, Ukraine's got, it's a land-bound country. You've got most of, you can just drive across the border, bring in armaments. You could also bring in people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's easier in that regard. It's also targetable. It's easier also to watch. Uh, the Russians kind of know where you're going to cross. Uh, there's only so many places. So there's a cat and mouse game that has to be played there. So easier in some respects, dangerous in others. Taiwan, on the other hand, island country. And the Chinese have spent, you know, 20 years building a navy that could cut off Taiwan from resupply. So, uh, it's easier from an operational perspective because the only way you're going to get stuff into Taiwan is from the sea or from air. And the air is really dangerous proposition, which means the most likely way you're going to sustain Taiwan is going to be from sea. And those are big, big container ships, big cargo ships, big targets. Uh, so the challenge is a lot higher. Uh, it becomes also deep, deep Navy one. Uh, you also mentioned the maneuver advantage. This one's actually, I think, more a lot alike than maybe it might seem of the, so the one that I, the, the place this really plays out is Snake Island in the Black Sea. Russians took it fairly early on. They had a point off land that they could watch what the Ukrainians were doing with their Neptune. Uh, anti-ship cruise missiles also gave the ability just to monitor and also blockade uh, any sh- commercial shipping going in and out of Odessa to the north of Snake Island. So it, it served a purpose, much like the offshore islands in Taiwan. The Pescadores come to mind, halfway between mainland China and Taiwan. So there's a similar kind of maneuver advantage that you have if you control these offshore islands, played out in both places. Ukraine had to retake it. Uh, and that was a precursor to them reopening up the shipping, you know, multinational deal. So that one, I think there's a lot more commonality between the geography and the importance of offshore islands, Taiwan, as well as Ukraine. And then how much value did you assign the sinking of the Moscow as you're writing this piece, given the ship's age? And then what what we seem to be is publicly available about lack of training or proficiency on the systems that they have on board. Yeah, so the, the, I guess the disclaimer up front is we won't really know for for years what really was going on on that ship, the Moskva. There's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence. There's stuff in Russian media, stuff that people have been able to get out from personal, like telegram channels that, oops, a sailor kind of let out. Uh, certainly paints a negative picture for their ma- uh, maintenance standards and damage control training. But I come back to that ship was a Cold War relic. It was designed to to take out our carriers, and so it was shoot and die or shoot and run. So it was never meant for the fight it was in. 
So it's hard to grade the Russians on the performance of that crew and that ship in this case. But it does tell us the importance of damage, damage control to this day. So watertight compartments, trained crews with good equipment can still save a ship. Uh, and that is very important for the Navy to kind of, and that's something I addressed. So I take that as the big lesson. The other one that's important, and again, the picture is a little murky because we don't have, and I would probably suspect even behind the curtain of, cl- of classification, probably don't have as full a picture yet. And that is the combined use of drones and shore-based anti-ship cruise missiles to complicate or to overwhelm the crew on the Moskva to defend itself. So that tells me that combined, this coordinated attacks are very, very dangerous. And again, this is something that, you know, if you go back to Bob Work's time and you go back even to Marshall's time and net assessment, this age of cruise missiles, I mean, this is, this is another iteration of that same problem set. Yeah, my kind of takeaway from the uh, Moskva sinking, and I had about three quarters of an article written that I was going to publish before uh, life intervened on me was it it didn't really teach us a lot of new lessons, but it reinforced a bunch of old ones. So you're talking about the damage control. And uh, like I would assume that in the course of your naval career, you set foot on a Russian warship at one point or another, even like you guys were sharing a port. You walk over there and the BLS launcher is all paint has been painted over six (laughs) times. Uh, rusty in different spots, or you can obviously tell they painted over rust and that's sort of a insidious problem. But then the other piece that I took away from it it, as I read as much as I could, again, we don't know what really happened was the criticality of like the diligent watchstander. Yeah. So whether that is the lookout observing something coming in or the, the combat information center watchstander who's supposed to be Wrapped attention in front of his or her screen for yes. four to six hours at a time, depending on what the uh, watch schedule is. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you don't have that in a missile fight, or yes. if you even have a 20 second lapse at the wrong time in a missile fight, mm-hmm. that's kind of it for you. Uh, so when I think about like the U.S. Navy and like the, the focus that we place on discipline, uh, in the watch standards, like that is kind of like a major difference slash advantage. But I don't know if you had any thoughts on any of that. Yeah, no, this area is something, even when I was still, you know, you go back 10 years ago or so in the Pentagon, you know, we were trying to get people to look at the human element. So this is not really, we weren't really concerned about the Russians at this time, though I think they merit, despite their size, they still can cause a lot of harm and death. Um, But it's the Chinese Navy, you know, how are they manning and training their enlisted sailors? And again, they're a conscript Navy. Uh do they have the same kind of dynamics the Soviets did? They don't have good chiefs and good, you know, first class petty officer equivalent. Not really a strong suit for Chinese Navy nor the Russian Navy. And so as you talk about that diligent watchstander, that's where that happens. Ships sink or stay in the fight based on uh, your junior enlisted. Um, and so I'm not so sure the quality is there, but we just don't know. Rich area for for uh, further research and certainly kind of kind of explore some more. Uh, it will matter at a tactical level. Absolutely. Yeah. Also an opportunity to make some dangerous assumptions about the future if we're, uh, if we're mm-hmm. wrong about it. Um, what, yes. are, what other lessons did you derive from the naval conflict to date? Uh, well, mines, simple like old World War One kind of mines can actually bring about international action. So this is the grain embargoes and or the, the blockade the Russians were doing and the fact that the world was seeing these mines complicating the shipment of grain uh, 
out of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and it was to Russia's benefit to open up the grain shipments too. They, they made a lot of money on that, but the world, um, overwhelmed an operational military operational effort and they changed the dynamics in the Black Sea. So, and that's just a World War One type mine, military and naval predominance in the area, which the Russians still have. So they could turn that off again in a, in a, at a flick of a switch. Um, so that's another one that I think is worth bringing up. And you're going to see this play out in shipping lanes from the Straits of Malacca, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. I mean, the United States is much more uh, connected economically. And its engine of industry, even in wartime, is connected to those sea lanes. So if you've got mines and you've got a hostile Navy tooling around in there, it's going to have a significant impact. How that changes the political, diplomatic choices the United States' as president has at the time will be shaped by that, much like the United Nations took action to try to to get both sides, Ukraine and Russia, to to relent and to allow grain shipments. We could be forced in a similar kind of world pressure to relent, and that could be very detrimental to Taiwan and to U.S. interests coming out of whatever conflict. So we got to be ready for that. Now, you had recommendations for SECDEF Congress, uh, mm. Indopaycom, and SECNAF. So yes. can you talk us through some of those recommendations? Yeah, I think, one, when you watch what's happening in the Black Sea, I make a similar recommendation for NATO nations to to cobble together their their, their mine ca- ca- you know, their mine clearance capability and just to patrol NATO waters in the Black Sea. A similar kind of thing, I think, it, is that could be worthwhile in the Philippine Sea, the East and South China Seas. You know, if a Korean, if a North Korea, South Korea conflict, you're going to see mines there too. So this a task force, a multinational task force that's standing, that's patrolling and keeping a lookout for dangers to shipping, I think has merit uh, in not only just a China-Taiwan crisis, but even a North Korea one. And so that's one of the recommendations. That's really the Indo-PACOM, uh, but it's going to be Navy pack fleet that probably executes it, and seven fleet in particular. Um, that's one. We don't have a whole lot to bring to the table on that. We do have some minesweepers, but not a whole lot. Uh, and it needs to have an operational framework existing. As we saw with Pelosi's visit, you're going to see similar kind of pl- uh, play uh, if, if we have another crisis. So better to have a task force in place before that. Uh, another one is, you know, the security cooperation, the provision of munitions and equipment to Ukraine. Man, that, I mean, the folks at UCOM and the folks at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency just across the street where I live, uh, these folks have taken what normally takes, you know, 10 months to a year and turn it around in, in the measurement of days and hours. Now that's got to be replicated left of bang in a conflict with over Taiwan. So there's a, that's another urgent recommendation is, hey, you need to go ahead and stand up a, the similar kind of thing, a Kolaroy of that in Indopaycom and and start exercising it the, t- the sales of weapons that Taiwan makes Congress is debating establishing a, a foreign military financing account pretty big one um, you got to have that in place because when urgency comes uh, or the bullets are flying that's not the time to sort this out we got lucky because Ukraine is a land country we could drive things across you don't have that benefit, so act now on that one. Another another interesting one has, has to do more with strategic capabilities office uh, and bring them in to try to slow or to blunt and deny that, that key operational problem 
and that is using like quick strike mines, which everyone's talking about extended range on bombers. When the fighting starts, you're going to want to lay mines from Taiwan. You can't do it from a ship or an aircraft because it'll be easy targets. The other thing is you won't know that it's for real invasion or an assault until they're crossing the 12-mile line. So you need something more responsive. SCO, strategic capabilities, you should be looking at taking those quick strike mines or an equivalent, putting it on a rocket that you could launch 6 to 10 miles offshore just in front of a Chinese armada, not place it there before. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Brent Sadler. Brent, where can we find you online? What are you working on next? Well, the best way to follow me, I'd say, is on LinkedIn. Uh, of course, you can always go to heritage.org and then just in the search, look, type in my name, Brent Sadler, and you'll find me. Uh, those are probably the easiest ways to find my, find me. And uh, if you have questions, you I, I will engage. I do respond. So I try to be very responsive to any and everything. Thank you for the chance to talk today. Well, thank you again for joining us. To the listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.